0: And tonight's study will be chapter 3, paragraphs 1 to 5. I thought we were more behind than we are, so that's why we're not doing the full chapter tonight. We'll do section 6 to 8 next week, but for tonight we're going to do 1 to 5. And this is uh, of God's eternal decree. Um, And the contents of this chapter uh, are probably... What people think of first when they think of Calvinism, when they think of Reformed theology, uh, are the things that are in this chapter, because it begins with a strong affirmation of God's sovereignty over all things. The chapter begins, God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And so, the first thing I want to do tonight is... Uh, talk about this statement really ought not to be a distinctive of reformed theology. It is, and it is what we believe. What I mean by that though is it shouldn 't be unique to us. This is actually just a mere claim of of theism. Um, this is a claim that is uh, held by by other religions that believe in a monotheistic god. Uh, this is a view held by Uh, Orthodox Jews, this is a view held by uh, conservative Muslims, this is a view held by Roman Catholics, and this is a view that at some level is held by most branches of Protestantism. What makes Calvinists, what makes Reformed theologians different is not that we believe that God is sovereignly in control of things, but that we believe that consistently. On the one hand, people will say that they believe that God is in control of all things, and then at the other, uh, and the moment of trouble, and the moment of of trial, they will doubt that. And we want to say, no, he's in control literally of all things. And we carry that through consistently. That is unique to Reformed theology. Uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, who many of you probably are familiar with, he said in his commentary of this chapter, of of this section, he says, all this does is affirm theism. It affirms that God is sovereign. If in some sense, God does not ordain everything that comes to pass, then he is not really sovereign. And if he is not sovereign, he cannot be God. If we self-consciously reject the sovereignty of God, we are rejecting the very nature of God and are not entitled to the term theist. What he's saying is, if you don't believe that God is in control of all things, then the God, of whatever concocting you have, is no God at all. Uh, It's not real theism. Now, that might sound like an overstatement to you. It did sound like an overstatement to me at first. What do I mean by overstatement? What does that term mean? Anybody? Ms. Duncan? You're saying something so much, so you get your point across. Yeah, you're, you're overemphasizing something. You're, you're going a little bit too far. Uh, but let's let's think this through. Realistically, if we understand God to be an All-powerful being, which is generally, that's how people would describe God, whether they believe in it or not. That's what the concept entails. There are three options on the intellectual table for you. There's one option, is atheism. I do not believe such a being exists. I do not believe an all-powerful being exists. The other option is deism. This being exists, but he doesn't really care about us. That's the God of deism. God is all-powerful. He created all things. And then he walked away. The last option on the table would be us. Theism believes that God exists, an all-powerful God, and that he cares about what goes on. And if he exists and there's nothing that's more powerful than him and he has a vested interest in the goings-on, then he must be in control of it in some sense. So let's look at a couple of Bible passages uh, to get this straight in our mind. And I realize that some of these claims will sound big, but let's stick with it and we'll uh, address some questions later. But first of all, if you have your Bible, flip to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read for us verses 3 to 11. If anybody ever tells you that they are a Christian, but they deny predestination outright, uh, take them to Ephesians chapter 1, because the Bible just straight up uses the word. Um, Now, they they may have different ways of understanding it. We'll talk about that later. But the word is in the Bible. We have to deal with it. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. So right, right, right off the bat, we've got God choosing to do something before creation is made. God has made a choice. He has chosen us to bless in Christ before the foundations of the world. Moving on. That we should be holy and blameless before him. And then here we go. In love, verse 5, he predestined us, which just means to determine beforehand for adoption as sons. Uh, through, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the beloved in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. See, all of this is about what God has decided, what God has chosen about God's intentions which he set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, verse 11, having been, again, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The point of reading all that is to say that Paul says over and over and over and over again in that stretch of introduction to the, to the Ephesian church, God has predestined that you would be in this church. God has predestined the events of your life. We believe it because the Bible says it. One other passage, and and we could go to a bunch, but let's just go to one other for the sake of time. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. I'm just going to, I'm reading more than the verse I really need, but just so we have it in context and understand what's going on. Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 13, the author of Hebrews writes, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the what unchangeable purpose of his character, or the unchangeable um, character of his purpose, he granted it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The author of Hebrews just said, when God made his covenant with Abraham, he said, I want you to know that this can't fail to come to pass. When I said, I will bless you and your offspring after you, that will happen. That is guaranteed because God cannot lie and he cannot fail to bring his purposes to pass. It is unchangeable. The author of Hebrews uses that word twice in verses 17 and 18. God has a purpose. And he's been pleased to make it known to us by way of covenant. And because he has this purpose, he will not fail to bring it to pass. And that means he controls both the big things in life and the seemingly insignificant things. And why is that the case? Why must it be the case? Because it's easy for a lot of people to affirm that God uh, has a, a a big picture plan, but the little things... Are up to us. A lot of people would think that way. Why is that not possible? Does anybody want to take a guess? Why is it not possible that God would ordain the major events in the history of the world without also ordaining the little ones? Because He's sovereign over everything. Because He's sovereign over everything. Okay. Because the little things shape the big things, so the little things change, and the big thing isn't the same. Right. Every Every big thing that happens in history is the culmination of a bunch of little itty bitty things. Right. Both those answers are correct. His is conceptually right, and and James is getting to the logic of why it has to be that way. It has to be that way. For example, there is a very real sense in which the reason that I'm standing here today is because ten years ago, a Jehovah's Witness decided to knock on my door. There's a direct correlation between him coming to my house to knock on my door on a particular day and me being here, because after he left my house... I decided to study what they believe. After I studied what they believe, I came across Reformed theology, and then I never left. And so when I got the call to go into ministry, I wanted to go into a Reformed ministry, and on and on it goes. You can even back it up further. The reason, a direct reason that I'm here today is because there was a recession in our economy in 2010 when I graduated college, and nobody was hiring but the Department of Taxation. So I took a job there. Then they, they allowed me to work from home. That's why I was home, to be able to open the door to meet the Jehovah's Witness and go on down the rabbit trail. That's a seemingly small thing. A guy knocks on my door into a major event in my life. I'm an ordained minister of the gospel. You guys see what I'm saying. You can't ordain just the big things. Another example would be, uh, anybody know who, who's a history buff in here? Alexander the Great. Do we know who that is? Who can tell me briefly who is Alexander the Great? Chase. Great man name named Alexander. <laughs> okay, very good. What was, what was great about it? He conquered pretty much all of Europe and like, the Middle East and then I guess Northern Africa too. He spread his ideas and yeah. culture and language and everything. Yeah, Ford, what do you want to add to that? Didn't he cut the garter and knot? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? There's this knot going to untie, so he just cut it. <laughs> there you go. But <laughs> well, he took over like, all of Europe. That's efficiency. So, so here, here's the point. Alexander the Great uh, becomes king of Macedon at 16 years old and decides, I'm going to conquer the world. And then by the time he's 30, he did it. Okay? This is a significant... Dialing, guys. This is an important person. This is a major event in world history. Uh, Chase was talking about he spread his culture through the conquests. That's called Hellenization. That's the spread, the advance of the Greek language. It's actually a direct reason why our New Testament is written in Greek. Pretty big deal. Does anybody know how Alexander the Great died? (laughs) Most likely, most likely malaria. He got bit by a mosquito. Seemingly insignificant event ended the life of one of the most important people in the history of the world. God cannot be in charge of just the big things without also ordaining the little things. My favorite example of this is in the scripture. Uh, would somebody please read for us Genesis 37, 15 to 17. Genesis 37, 15 to 17. And while you turn there, I'll just set up the context. This is the passage uh, where, where Israel has said, uh, I want to know how my sons are doing. Joseph, could you go look for him? And so he sends Joseph to go get a report on his older brothers. Uh, who's there? Ms. Miss, Miss Berenger. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. So how did Joseph find his brothers? I got to where they were. Some guy randomly happened to see him in the field. And also, that same guy randomly happened to know where his brothers were. Now, what happens if he's not there? Joseph doesn't find his brothers. What happens if Joseph doesn't find his brothers? He doesn't get beaten up. And he doesn't get sold to the Midianites. And he doesn't go to Egypt. And then a lot of people die because of the famine. And what's worse is the the brothers of Joseph and their father don't wind up in Egypt. And there's no exodus. And on down the line you could go... There's no cross. Because without the Exodus setting the paradigm for the nation of Israel, there's no coming of the Messiah. And on and on you could go. Why? Because one guy happened to be in the field. God cannot sovereignly ordain the big things without also ordaining the little things. Um, As A.A. Hodge puts it, there is no event that is isolated from other events. No event is isolated from other events. Nothing happens in a vacuum. And one last passage to, to bring to y'all's attention, just to see this, is uh, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 10 and 11. Somebody else read that for us. Isaiah 46, 10 and 11. <coughs> Mr. Gamble. declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times. So this is the Lord speaking. Go on. He declares the end from the beginning in the ancient times. Things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird to pray from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose. Yeah, I have purpose and I will do it. And that extends from the beginning of time to the end of time. That extends the calling of a man for his mission and the bird flying from the east. And everything in between. God has sovereignly foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And now the confession is going to give us uh, several, I think it's three important qualifications to what we'll call the, the major proposition. The major proposition is God has sovereignly foreordained everything that comes to pass. Now they're going to give us these Qualifications that don't negate that, they don't take away from that, but they make sure we understand it in a balanced sense. They make sure we understand it properly and we don't take it to places it's not intended to go. Uh, they prevent us from, from understanding this wrongly. Um, so the first one is, is right here. It says, uh, he sovereignly, unchangeably ordains whatsoever comes to pass, back to the confession, chapter 3, section 1, yet... So as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, that's qualification one, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, that's qualification two, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established. That's number three. We're going to talk about all those real quick. Uh, they kind of are all related, but let's, let's, let's address these. Uh, the first one is that, that when we say that God has sovereignly ordained whatsoever comes to pass— We are not saying that he has authored or in any way approved of the sin that happens in the world. He's sovereign over it. He's in control. But he does not author it, nor does he approve it. And I think Dr. Hodge offers about as good of an explanation for this as there is when he writes, It must be remembered, however that the purpose of god with respect to the sinful acts of men and wicked angels is not is, is now uh, in his decree is not in his decree to cause the evil nor to approve it but only to permit the wicked agent to perform it and then overrule it for his own most wise and holy ends so really fancy way of saying god allows wicked people to do wicked things And in that sense of allowing them to do it, he has ordained it. He could stop them, but there are times and points when he doesn't. And he overrules not their choice to do the wicked thing, but the intention for which the wicked thing was done. He uses sin sinlessly. He takes the wicked intentions of men's hearts and then turns them to good ends. The best and clearest example of this is the cross of Jesus himself. Peter says in Acts 2, 22 to 23, I'll read this for us. He's he's preaching the sermon at Pentecost. Uh, This is just probably about six weeks after Jesus has been crucified. And he's in Jerusalem preaching to people who would have been there and would have known. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what Peter's saying is, these these men that crucified our Lord, they didn't know God's sovereign decree. They didn't say, oh, God put this on my agenda today, I have to do it. No, they crucified him because they hated him, because they wanted to kill him, because they hated him, they crucified him. It's not as if they really wanted to follow Jesus, but then instead were forced against their will to kill him. No, they wanted to, and God allowed them to do so because it was his will for Jesus to die that his blood might be shed and you might be saved. So he took the wicked desires of men and turned it into the greatest thing that's ever happened for us. You guys see, he takes the wicked desires of men and turns them, not for man's intention, but for good. This is the same thing we see in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, where uh, we've already talked about Joseph and his brothers. They, they hated him. They beat him. They sold him into slavery. And then God used their wicked act, not for their intention, which was to hurt their brother, but for his intention, which was to have Joseph there for the famine, have a plan in place to store up crops, to save lives, and ultimately that would lead to Christ. They had a one intention, God had another one, and he used their act for his will. That is what we're saying. God is not the author or approver of sin. And this does dovetail right into the second qualification, uh, which which is... That violence is not offered to the will of the creatures. Violence is not offered to the will of the creatures. We, and we have to be careful how we use this word and how we understand it, because it's loaded with a lot of baggage. We do freely choose our actions. We do freely choose our actions. Chad Van Dixhorn, who's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, says, God is sovereign... But in a very real way, we are free, and in every way, we are responsible for our actions. So how is it that that God has sovereignly ordained everything that comes to pass, and yet violence is not offered to my will? It's because my will does whatever my nature tells it to do. And God is the one who can change my nature, should he so desire. But when he changes my nature, then I freely act in accord with it. Um, This may sound like a silly illustration to some of you, but uh, some people...